It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Jason Jordan. Jason is a partner of Vantage Point Performance, and you may know him best as the author of the best-selling book, Cracking the Sales Management Code. Jason, welcome to Accelerate. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. So, take a minute. I mean, that was a fairly brief introduction. Introduce yourself. Maybe tell us how you got your start in sales. Sure. Well, as you said, I'm Jason Jordan. I'm a partner with Vantage Point, and Vantage Point is a uh, sales training company, basically, um, but we focus only on sales managers. So it's kind of our niche that uh, differentiates for us from all of the other sales training companies. And uh, the path here was winding a little bit, as most most are. I uh, college uh, came out of college, was in sales for several years, then went to business school and came out. And uh, at the time I came out of business school, you either went into banking or consulting. No, mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. no one knew what a startup was. You know, going having a public offering was the last thing you ever wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> So I was a management consultant for many years and ended up doing a lot of work for sales forces. So doing a lot of um, you know, uh, compensation design, process design, um, playing the business side of CRM implementations. And, uh, and over time, just kind of morphed that consulting into training because I saw it as a more direct way to um, make an impact on the sales force. Because no matter what you do, there's a change management effort at the end of it. And we ended up doing a reasonable amount of training. And so so now we focus on training sales managers. It's kind of our um, our thing. Okay. So, yeah, you brought up a couple of points even in your your introduction there that we're going to explore as we go into this. So, what was, what was the impetus for writing Cracking the Sales Management Code? I mean, what was happening out there that you saw that that you said, hey, this is this is really something we need to address? Because... You know, you talked about, you know, not a lot of people focusing on training sales managers, and and yet you identify in the book that you know this is really the leverage point for improving performance more so than training sales reps. Yeah, well, there were a couple at least things coming together that kind of led to the book. I mean, as you can imagine, with something like that, it you know, we wrote the book in a six month period, but it was years leading up to that. All the things we observed and all the things we learned along the way, and. One thing that's quite clear, as you point out, is you know I have a huge appreciation for sales management. Um, having been in sales and obviously consulted a lot to leadership, I think there's a fundamental um, misappreciation, and not as much as maybe five or six years ago when we were writing the book and putting our business together, but um, there, there really wasn't an appreciation for the impact that frontline sales managers particularly have on sales performance. And and so, you know, put that in the context also of CRM. I mentioned that I had worked on some CRM implementations back in the day. And, you know, CRM kind of came onto the scene with this promise of um, improved sales efficiency. And maybe even if you're lucky, you know, improved sales effectiveness. And mm-hmm. you kind of see, you know, we kind of saw people running around, you know, with reports in their hands or, or reports on their screens now more virtually. Dashboards. And, yeah, dashboards. You got to have them. And, um, you know, and the, the, the promise was that they would lead to better sales management, which, of course, should lead to better sales performance. And, and I think there's still some, some reality to this. It, it didn't really play out that way. Um, you know, it, it automated some stuff that was being done. But, um, you know, when you look at what sales management was doing with those reports and how they were using them to hopefully 
you know, changed the way they managed, so the people changed the way they sold, it wasn't really having an effect. So it's kind of this, um, this uh, joining together of our respect for sales management and also our dismay at the investment in CRM and the lack of impact coming out of it. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things you talked about in this sort of relates to the dashboard is that you know you did a survey of of all these various companies and you found what was it, like three hundred and five sales management metrics that people were were tracking that were really all over the board. In fact, yeah, many of which didn't really seem to correlate at all to improved either sales efficiency or effectiveness. Yeah. Well, and I think anyone who's ever stared at a dashboard can get a sense for this. You know the. Um, you know, the question we were trying to solve when looking at these metrics, I mean, and you're exactly right, it was a, the, the basis of the book was a, a study we did. We collected a bunch of sales management reports from our clients and, and, other, um, and other folks. And we just looked at what people were collecting uh, by way of metrics. And then, of course, how they were using them. And the, you know, the ultimate goal here is to improve the business. In fact, uh, Neil Rackham, who wrote Spin Selling, told me years ago, he said, uh, you know, there's, there's no reason to to measure something unless you intend to improve it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we measure a lot of stuff because we can measure it. Well, increasingly and, so. Yeah, and if you look at the reporting that we get, and this was one of our observations, you know, people were just gathering data because they could. And you know, if you ask people what data they needed to manage, it may not be on the reports, but what was on the reports was what was easily accessible. And you know, to, to play forward the story about the metrics, you know, we, we really looked at how can you use these metrics to manage better? to manage the sales force. And, you know, the, the theme of the book, something that came out kind of loud and clear is that you, you can't manage revenue. You can't manage quota. Um, you can't manage all the outcomes that we want. You can only exactly. manage activities. And so, um, you know, the, one of the other pieces of data that came out of our research was only 17% of the metrics of those 300 you mentioned were actually behaviors or act- activities. You know, it's only 17% of the stuff we have on our dashboards are things we can actually control, which are the things we do. And so, you know, the story just came out loud and clear that we measure a bunch of stuff and we measure a lot of it out of convenience. And we dutifully look at the dashboards and we try to do something with it. But in reality, we don't have the right data to manage the sales force better. And we don't have an understanding of how to use the data to manage the sales force better. And so it's, you know, everyone's got data, everyone's got reports, everyone's got CRM. Um, the challenge now is to, to use it to actually improve things. And yeah. that's what we've really tried to do with the book. Right. I mean, to me, I mean, what you've found is that you have all these leaders that don't have this integrated view of how activities correlate to outcomes. No. I mean, there's, well, there's, no, there's no direct path. And as you said, at that point, what they ended up doing is thinking, trying to, trying to measure or manage outcomes as opposed to really focus on, on activities. But it seems like with some of the, and you know, fast forward a few years since you wrote the book, and there's been this great explosion of sales technologies and sales automation technologies coming into the marketplace, which you know are generating a lot more data. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that's that's being written about more frequently is that sales managers have sort of turned into desk jockeys and data junkies, uh, as opposed to managing their people. Yeah. Well, there's something interesting in what you said, which is that we can create more and more data and we can collect it with better integrity. We can analyze it with better sophistication. We can present it with more visual appeal, but it's still just pieces, just pieces of data, right? I mean, most of the advances have been in 
the integrity or the cleanliness of the data and the ability to report it, and maybe to some extent the ability to collect it without being so obtrusive. But you know, I, I said at Dreamforce, you know, Salesforce is a big conference every year, and I'll mm-hmm. say it again this I'll say it again this year. You know, our ability to collect and report data has accelerated faster than our ability to use it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that uh, that is the the fallacy that I think a lot of companies operate under is that the more data we give the field, the better job we're doing as an enablement organization, or the, the more data the field has, or the more reports the field has, the better decisions they'll make. And exact, exactly the opposite, actually. Um, you know, when you talk about CRM adoption, or you talk about the impact of CRM, we've, we've talked to a lot of companies about this. We work with you know, big companies. Our biggest clients are 3M and GE and Schlumberger. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, we work with big companies with big sales forces, obviously, because they have a lot of sales managers. They've made investments, huge investments in the technology. And and it's come up again and again that the best um, the best systems as measured by adoption and impact are the ones that have fewer reports, not more. Um, one company we were talking to, there was actually they, they were they were referred to us from Salesforce.com as someone who had done a good job of the implementation. You know, they said they took their reports when they went through this most recent iteration of CRM from over a hundred down to twelve that the field got. And they said that you know, reducing the number of reports was hard because once someone has a data point, it's hard to take it away. Mm-hmm. But they said you know, focusing on fewer reports, not more, did a couple of things. First, it forced them to identify what were the important data points. And not all that data is important. Some of it's just noise and a distraction. And so it first forced them to rationalize the data, which forced them through a process of, well, what is this is really important? You know, what of this data is actually being used by the field? <clears throat> and then simultaneously, it sent a message to the field, what is the important stuff? So if you only get two or three reports, you have to pay attention to that data. And it's kind of sending the signal that this is the important stuff rather than logging in in the morning, having 200 reports you can download. And it's kind of up to you to wade through it and figure it out yourself. So it's kind of a long explanation of a short point, which is that companies think they're doing the right thing by providing more and more data to the field. They think they'll use that to manage better. And in reality, it's reached the point where enablement organizations um, need to be more selective about the data they're putting out there. But it puts a burden on them to actually understand what's important. Yeah, I mean, the problem originated, you talked about in the book, is that companies with CRM began by designing reports in their implementation phase. Let's design the reports we want rather than saying, hey, here's how we actually sell, and this is the data we need to use to be able to improve our efficiency and our effectiveness in our selling. Yeah, I'll give you a quick story that under under, um, lines that point. This story is not in the book, Um, but I was, uh, back when I was doing some management consulting I had a client here in North America. It was a big client, multi-billion dollar company. And I'd done some other stuff, some territory design work and process design work. And so the, the head of sales and marketing for North America calls me one day and he's back when he called people on the phone. <laughs> and he said, uh, hey, we're getting ready to replace our CRM tool um, with a new one. And I don't know if you can help us out, but we're kind of running into some bumps. And so I said, sure. And, uh, you know, set aside some time, we're chatting. And he said, I uh, kind of put out to the IT department that we wanted to replace our CRM platform. Well, actually, that's not even true. Actually, the IT department came to them and said they were going to retire it because it was old technology. And said, okay, we need to get a new CRM platform. And the IT department started scheduling a bunch of meetings to design reports. And that was the entry point. And I said, well, Jim, what have you done so far? And he said, well, we've got a bunch of meetings going on where uh, the IT department's meeting with our sales managers and they're designing reports. And I said, well, 
then you're just going to end up with prettier versions of your current reports. And he said, yeah, and that's what I'm concerned about. And I said, well, you know, did the old system work the way you wanted it to? And he said, no, it was terrible. It didn't mirror the way we sold. It didn't mirror the way we wanted to manage. And I said, well, this is probably an opportunity to work on your sales processes and to get the operational stuff the way you want it and then just map the technology on that. And he said, yeah, that's what we need to do. And so I, I said, Jim, you got to get in front of this. I mean, you need to own the CRM implementation, not IT. And he said, well, it's their budget and it's, you know, it's kind of already down the path. And I said, well, then you're going to end up with what you get. You're going to get a bunch of data reports. And, and so he, to his credit, he did put a halt to the IT project. And you talk about some infuriated IT people. <laughs> I mean, they had a budget and they had a timeline and deadlines, but, but they did exactly what you said. They were just going to design some new reports and put it on a prettier platform and, you know, he was smart enough to understand that when you do something as disruptive as changing technology like that, it's an opportunity to improve the operations of the company, not just to pretty up, you know, and, and modernize the platform technology-wise. So it's a, you know, we do so many things in sales and other parts of the business too, but I see sales um, like you do, you know, that are just, they make sense, but they're counterproductive. And that's something that we fight in training sales management is to point out what's the important stuff, you know, what's the red herring. Um, you know, what, what stuff appeals, but isn't really that appealing, <laughs> right? What stuff is pretty, but not really that important. And it's a, it's a constant battle just to keep people focused on the, on the right stuff. Well, you have an interesting point in the book, which I, I really liked was you said that sales is an art, but sales management is a science. Mm-hmm. So explain that. Well, so, you know, most people listening to this podcast will probably have been in sales and, and, and you know, if you're a salesperson, it, it's like being an actor in a, you know, in an impromptu play to an extent. I mean, you're, you're, you're face to face with someone uh, that you haven't met or haven't had a plan. You know, you're, you're, you're reacting in the moment and mm-hmm. you can succeed for a lot of reasons. You can um, obviously succeed historically because of perseverance or maybe you're um, thoughtful and ask questions or you know, you're a good listener. You are really good at identifying needs. There are a lot of reasons you can uh, succeed as a salesperson. And a lot of it is uh, improvisation because that's what you that's the world you find yourself in when you meet someone and you're having a conversation with a customer or prospect. And so there are lots of reasons that salespeople succeed. You know, salespeople can be good at one or two things and have a bunch of blind spots and still succeed because they are good at the right thing. But by the time you get promoted to sales manager, um, if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on how you look at it, as a reward for being a super salesperson, you'll be promoted to being a sales manager and you'll be ignored. Right. Something you're no good at. Yeah. And um, But you're in management. And so you can't really succeed with one or two skills being a sales manager. And more importantly... You know, you need to be surveying the landscape and you need to be putting together all the pieces. You had to have, you need to have a view of uh, the go-to-market strategy and how all the territories work together and how all the product sets and how all the customers. And, and to do that, you really need to rely on information. And so rather than relying on your ability to interact in, you know, in kind of this improvisational uh, world, you need to operate with rigor. And you need to incorporate data into your decision making. And it's just that level of rigor that takes people from artists to scientists. And, you know, we've all known sales managers who have succeeded because their personality was just such and they motivated people, people wanted to work for them. They got the most out of folks. But increasingly, the sales managers we see as the most um, effective are the ones who can treat it more like a business and more like a science and manage with rigor, which means not only using data to make your decisions, but also having sales management processes in addition to sales processes. And so that additional level of rigor that you inherit when you become a manager is really what I mean when I say that, you know, you can succeed as an artist, as a salesperson, but you need to be a pretty good scientist by the time you're in management. 
good stuff. Well, it's, my answers get long, I realize, but... No, no, no. There's no problem with that at all. Okay, <laughs> it's fine. Um, no, I think it's... Yeah, I'm really glad I found the opportunity to get into your book and read it. And, and uh, Thank you. Yeah, very, very well done. Extremely relevant. You guys were, as you're probably aware, at least uh, <laughs> from my perspective, you were ahead of your time because a lot of these issues you address are coming into greater currency uh, like I said, especially with all the sales automation technology that's out there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this issue of of people trying to control outcomes versus processes and activities is, is still, at least in the, yeah, more in the mid-sized and smaller companies, is still huge there. Well, and, you know, I, I often tell people, you know, it's, I don't think we're as much trainers as we are educators, and the reason I say that is because you know we're not like a classic training company where you have to rehearse and role play and do this stuff. You know, once you point out to someone that they're trying to manage outcomes, most people go, "Yeah, that's pretty stupid. I shouldn't be doing that." Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I like to think that a lot of the stuff we preach is common sense, and that's kind of the way that we've tried to position stuff. Is this is simpler than you're making it, and. It makes sense to ask for the outcomes, but you can't control them. So maybe give a little more direction as to how to get there. And so, I mean, everything you just said, I do consider a big compliment because that's exactly what we tried to communicate that, you know, there's, it is time to focus on sales managers and it is time to focus on the activities of the sales force. And it is time to kind of cut through the clutter of CRM and all the data and just focus on the important stuff because we all know that's what we have to do. We just don't take the time to do it. So your, your comments are um, much appreciated. Well, and I, it resonated with me because in my first two books I've written, it's, it's all about, from the salesperson's perspective, simplifying and focusing yeah. on focus on one or two things that you have direct control over that will have an outcome, an impact on, on your results. Yeah. And I really focus on responsiveness. Now, to me, this is the... The key, you know, sort of like Duhigg talked about power of habit, you know, find your keystone habit. If you change that, the ripple effects work through everything. And, and that's one thing a sales rep can, can absolutely control, mm-hmm. you know, how responsive they're being to their prospects. And I have a little different definition of responsiveness, but yeah, that one thing, focus on that. You can control that completely as a sales rep. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago, a few years ago, and um, the point of it was, you know, we, we wring our hands about how to improve sales performance. Right? I mean, to, to your point, a sales leader lands and he's trying to identify how does he improve sales performance or she improves sales performance. And, and my, the article was, we have a way for improving performance. We know exactly how to do it. It's called a performance management plan. And, you know, when a sales rep or an employee starts to go off the rails and they're on the verge of failure and getting fired, what do we do? You know, we spend more time with them. We focus on their activities. We start to measure what they're doing. You know, we, we basically just start managing them. Mm-hmm. And so my point was, maybe we should put all of our salespeople on a performance management plan, you know, sit down with them, help them prioritize what they're doing, pay attention to their activities, measure it, report it. It's, it's comedy to me that we actually know how to improve performance. We just choose to let people run wild. And then we're like flummoxed when they don't do what we expect them to accomplish. But Well, yeah, it was really interesting that to that your story, and then I'll let you go, is... is yeah, I took over a sales organization and a sort of mature startup. They would company had gone public, but I was brought in to run sales in this one division. And yeah, the salespeople. This is exactly what I did with the salespeople. Is, is I created a performance plan for each of them and worked with them to develop it. 
but they'd been so accustomed to not having that level of oversight mm-hmm. that they hated it. <laughs> but and about half the team left, and the half that stayed really succeeded quite nicely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, sales reps sometimes don't like to be managed. So, well, I give you, I give you one more, and then I'll let you go. So I was at a, a Salesforce dot uh, com. Um, regional event, whatever I was speaking. And so after I finished, there was a panel on behind me and, and one of the guys was, had a small sales force, I don't know, maybe 20 people or whatever. And he said that uh, they started analyzing activity levels and they realized that the most successful people were making more phone calls and setting more meetings and doing all the activity level stuff. And he said that they eventually, they set up a point system. I think you'll like this. So they, they set up a point system and they said for every you know phone call, it's a point or whatever. Right. And for every right. meeting, it's two points or whatever it was. And they found that the most successful people had over 400 points per month or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he said, they set an activity quote. They did away with their sales quotas. They completely disregarded the sales quota. They stopped tracking how much people were selling. They had an activity quota. And literally all they tracked for the salespeople was the level of activity measured by that point system. They had to have 200 points a month or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said, I said, I raised my hand in the back of the room. Like I, obviously I love the story you just told, but how did the salespeople react to it? And he said, they really loved it. He said, they really appreciated knowing how to succeed. And it removed some of the pressure of having to get to their number every month or every quarter or every week. He said, obviously there are some people who reacted negatively, but, but in the end it was a really popular change. And I found it so fascinating that someone would prefer to have an activity quota than a financial quota. But it's um. What's well, it's it's interesting you brought that up because I I uh, I had this and I've used this in the past and I got it from one of my mentors who used it on me is a system we call a box score and that's exactly what it was what you just described right mm-hmm. so points for certain activities and um and I was actually I was just looking at that a week ago I was thinking okay I'm going to write about this again because I think this is this is really a way to approach it. Because yeah, I mean it's it's about it's about activities, and I think people spend too much time focused on, you know, I hate this whole thing about you know closers, blah 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 blah. It's you know, execute your activities and your plans and your process. The yep. outcomes outcomes are going to come. That's right. So um, yeah, it's, that's that's a great story, and I've never heard anybody take it to that extreme. But I love that idea. Well, I mean, obviously, it can only happen in a small company run by one character. Yeah, but, uh, it's not going to happen at 3M anytime soon. But no, no, no. <laughs> it's a fun, fun story. It is. All right. Well, Jason, I appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 